Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Malted Muse podcast. Well, thank you for downloading this episode of the Morted Muse podcast. And of course, this is actually a very special episode. Well, special for me anyway. This is the 52nd episode. And as I do a podcast once a week, it means that I have now been doing this podcast for a whole year. To be honest, it the time has gone by so quickly. So I was thinking, what can I do to to mark that occasion, to celebrate this being the anniversary, the first anniversary of the Malted Muse podcast. And what I thought of was, well, let's talk to the person who inspired me to do it in the first place. If I could just go off track just for a very short period of time here, I'd like to explain how I started doing this podcast. Well, basically... In my job, my day job, I quite often have to wear ear defenders and I use power tools. And I got used to listening to a little bit of music whilst I was doing that. But it wasn't that rewarding because I was listening to the same stuff again and again. And then my father-in-law died. And I became aware that if my wife tried phoning me up, if she was in need... I wouldn't be able to hear the telephone because of my ear defenders or because of the music I was listening to. So I came up with the idea of plugging the headphones into my phone so that if a phone call came through, it would ring in my ear. And luckily for me, my phone had a radio facility to it, so I started listening to the radio. And the only radio channel I could get predictably was Radio 1. Well, as time went by and the chances of her phoning be lessened off, I'd got used to listening to the radio and I happened to say to her, you know, I think I might get myself a radio to listen to because the phone battery doesn't last that long. Now, her response to that was to go out and buy me an iPod. And my first response to that wasn't that impressed because the iPod, didn't have a radio function. So I said to her, I'm back to square one in many ways of having to listen to the same music again and again. So I looked into it a little bit and then discovered podcasts. Well, one of the first podcasts I listened to was Mark Gillespie's Whiskey Cast. And at first I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to take to this. After listening to the first episode, I was hooked. And for quite a few weeks, about that was about the only thing I listened to, non-stop. And then having gone through that, I started listening to other podcasts as well. I thought Mark Gillespie's podcast was absolutely fantastic, and I wanted to be a part of that. So I contacted Mark and said, look, there's this whiskey festival coming up near me soon. Why don't I go to that, interview some of the people there, and like do a report on it? for you for your podcast would you be interested in that and i got a very polite reply from mark saying well thanks for the offer jim but no thanks i like to do things myself which i can understand but it then left me thinking well if i can't do stuff for his podcast 
And what I can do then, because I want to do something else. I, I want to develop my relationship with whiskey, and this looks like a good way of doing it. And after a little bit of thought, I suddenly it suddenly dawned on me, why don't I do my own podcast? And that is what I decided to do. And here we are on the first anniversary of the Mortar Muse podcast. So let's do that. Let's talk to the person who inspired me in the first place to do this. And it is a great privilege, a great honour and a great joy to me to be able to put into this podcast an interview with Mark Gillespie. Your podcast, as you know, it's the thing that has really inspired me to do one. But you have this distinctive style. It's a very professional style, if you don't mind me saying so. It has It has that obvious quality of being made from somebody who's an experienced program maker, experienced journalist, but also somebody who's got an underpinning knowledge of whiskey. Now, for people who don't know, what actually is your background and how did you move from that background to where you are at the moment? Well, my background is as a professional journalist. You you pretty much nailed it. Uh, before I started doing Whiskey Cast, and while I've been doing it, I've been a, a working radio and TV journalist for a better part of 30 years or so, to be honest with you. So producing a, an audio podcast or radio show was really nothing new to me. It was just the, uh, the format that changed. Mm-hmm. So instead of uh, producing it for broadcast, uh, I was essentially producing it to, to run my own little radio station, for lack of a better term. Right. And I got into it so that uh, at the time I started in the fall of 2005, I was uh, doing some work for a company that uh, was interested in getting into doing some podcasting with the content we were producing, and I was responsible for producing a lot of that content. And uh, I used WhiskeyCast, essentially I started it as the test bed to test out all the technology. Right. to see what uh, was going to be involved in podcasting and to make sure that we could do it and to see what uh, what kind of a workload it was going to be and how effective it would be. And I'm not with that company anymore, but uh, WhiskeyCast continues to this day. That sounds good. So is that where the, the interest in whiskey for you came from, then, through that company, or was that...? Oh, no, no, no. I had been drinking whiskey for many years before that. But uh, when I was looking around for some ideas for content, I thought, well, you know, if I did this, then this would give me a chance to not only uh, interview and talk to some of these uh, distillers and some of the, uh, for lack of a better term, the good old boys that have been making whiskey for years and years and to sort of pick their brains and learn from them, but also to bring other people along with me on the journey. It's that, so it's that meeting of two things coming together. Right. Essentially, it was the chance to create an oral history with uh, some of the uh, older distillers. I mean, I wish somebody had done this. uh, I wish I had actually done this a few years earlier because uh, I never got the chance, for instance, to uh, talk to the late Parker or late, I'm sorry, uh, Booker No from Jim Beam fame, uh, who is Fred's father, who is Fred is now the Fred knows now the current master distiller. But uh, Booker passed on about a year or so before I started doing Whiskey Cast, and uh, I think it would have been fun to have uh, sat down on the porch with him down in Bardstown and picked his brain about bourbon for a while sure. and gotten it all on tape. But it was uh, the chance to talk to guys like that that really sort of I had been knocking the idea around for months before I ever actually 
had to do it, and I'm, I wish I had done it sooner. Yeah, I mean, I think I might come back to that a bit later, if I may. But but one thing I will say about your podcasts is that when I first discovered them, I mean, I listen to an awful lot of podcasts. Yours is one of the first that I, I've listened to, and it's the only one where I've actually thought to myself, I need to save these on the CD. And that's partly to do with what you were saying about the fact what you are doing there is building up this oral history, um, which is a wonderful thing. Um, most of the time, I'm going to be a bit cheeky with you with the next two questions. I hope that's okay. But most, <laughs> of course, most of the time you appear to be balanced, objective. Okay, and I'm saying most of the time, and I shall come to that little bit in just a moment. How easy is it to stay that balanced and not let personal opinion overshadow the program? It's a lot easier than you'd think because uh, keep in mind that I'd been doing this for a long time before I ever moved into the whiskey space. I used to cover politics. I used to cover business. So I'm used to putting my own personal opinions aside. Right. Uh, in dealing with politicians, you have to. Well, even if you like them or not, you still have to put your own opinions aside. So realistically, that was never a difficult part for me to be neutral. Brilliant. Now, I said that I was going to come to the second part of that, and this is where I'm going to be a bit cheeky, but we have to go off into fantasy land for a moment. Okay. Because I, I said that there may be an exception to that balance. So let's see if I can just tease this one out of you. Can we imagine for a moment that you've won a, a million-dollar house makeover, and that's by a world-famous designer who's actually at the top of his game. Now, he comes to your house... And the two of you get on really well with each other. He notices the whiskey influence in your life. And he mentions to you that he loves whiskey himself. And it turns out to be one of his main interests. You start swapping stories with each other. And then he tells you the name of his favourite whiskey. It's a whiskey called Lock Do. Now, hearing that news, do you let him carry on with the design or do you respond in a different way? <laughs> I let him carry on the design, but I keep a really close eye on his taste. That's brilliant. Yeah, I had this funny thought when I asked that question, whether you'd say something about a thing. I think you Americans call the Fifth Amendment. But... No, no, no. <laughs> I, I kid about Lock do occasionally. I, I kid about it. Um, I think even the people who made Lock do would tell you that if they had one whiskey they could take back and not release to the world, that's the one they would go back and... Uh, not do it was um i i kid about that one because you you've got to have one to kid about yeah uh, you've got to have one whipping boy to kid about just a little bit and that's the one for me it's just um i, I have a lot of fun joking about lock do but sure. uh there i don't uh I don't argue with those who like it. There are people who like it, and more power to them. Every one of us has a unique taste, uh, unique senses, and uh, our own personal sense of taste when it comes to whiskey and the things we like. Uh, some people love peaty whiskeys. Some don't. Some like very light, grassy whiskeys. Some don't. Some like Lock Do, and I don't. But isn't that one of the wonderful things about whiskey, though? It's, it's yeah. often been said there is a whiskey there for almost everybody, if not for everybody. Absolutely. Because of that huge variety. 
Absolutely. There's a whiskey out there for everyone, and even for the people who don't like whiskey. Um, I will subscribe to uh, folks who have said this, uh, and there are too many of them to name, that if you tell me you don't like whiskey, I bet I can find one out there that you'll like, and I'm not the first one to say that. Yeah. Although I have been warned, having said that myself to somebody, that one of his friends then turned around to me and said, be careful that he just doesn't say you know, oh, I don't like that one, and I don't like that one, just so you keep trying to prove them. But um, back to the more serious questions, and a question that it would be a crime for me not to ask you, and it comes back to something you were saying earlier on about um, this oral heritage that you're building up. You've interviewed many people during the time you've been doing your podcast. If I was going to be very cruel to you and say, could you just pick three of the most memorable of them, what are those three likely to be wow yeah it's a difficult question well it's difficult i I can tell you um the first one right off the bat would be uh the interview i did with uh elmer t lee um three or four years ago actually it was one of the probably maybe 2007 or so elmer is the master distiller emeritus at buffalo trace and was one of is one of only three living living bourbon distillers who has his own bourbon with his name on it. Hmm. Uh, the other two being Parker Beam and Jimmy Russell. And Elmer is 92 now, and his health is starting to fade just a little bit. But I saw him just a couple months ago back in uh, Lexington, and he still gets around. He still gets out to the distillery once a week, but uh, I'm glad I got to sit down and do that. Uh, do about 20 minutes with him. Um, Probably the other two that are most memorable. Hmm. There, there have been so many over the years. Uh, one of the more memorable ones that I think would be kind of fun to remember is uh, that I'll think about this in years to come would have been just recently uh, last month when I was at Wild Turkey, uh, sitting down with uh, Jimmy Russell and That's his it, uh, yeah. son Eddie, because Jimmy is uh, another one of those guys who's been in the business for 57 years now. And this was the first time I had sat down with a father and son distilling team. And this was after Jimmy had uh, been cutting up, as he likes to do, and pointed out that Eddie had been uh, hired at Wild Turkey as a summer job, and the summer job turned out to last 30 years before they finally let him make his own whiskey. But uh, hearing sort of the, uh, the relationship there between father and son was very memorable. And I think that's, that's going to be one that I'm going to remember for a long time to come. I, I've had so many fun interviews that it's really hard to pick out three, but those are two that I'm glad I got to do those two specifically, yes. just for the historical part of it. That's, that's very interesting, actually, because I think reading between the lines there, you're also suggesting something that I felt from my own experience as well, which is those moments when you're interviewing somebody and you know that you're actually touching history at the same time. Yeah, if you understand what I mean, um, not just the fact that you're talking to people with so much interest and knowledge and relevance as well, but you're also touching some of these fantastic characters that the whiskey world hold. That's what makes this so much fun is that there are so many great stories, and we've only scratched the surface in five and a half years on Whiskey Cast. There are so many great stories that these guys can tell and it's really what makes this so much fun sure sure 
recently, Mark, you've started Whiskeycast HD, and you've also, as we said earlier on, you, you've taken on this role with Whiskey Magazine. How, how, how's the HD going? Because that's quite a new thing for you, isn't it? It's a new thing, but not a new thing. I had said that I would do video when I could do it to the quality that I wanted and to be able to do it to the point where it doesn't interfere, where it, it wasn't a pain in the butt to do, frankly. Um, right. And I, I say that not because doing video in the past was a pain in the butt, but for me to do it would have required carrying another video camera around with a lot of equipment and a lot... and would have taken away from my ability to do Whiskey Cast, the radio show, which was always the priority for me. Hmm. We've gotten to the point now with the digital SLR technology where I can shoot video on the same camera that I shoot all my stills with. Sure. And I was able to start doing that earlier this year. I was able to uh, acquire a new uh, Canon uh, EOS D60, which shoots full HD video, along with 18.2 megapixel still photos. And as you know, I've always been a photographer at heart, too. So this means that I can shoot video with the same camera that I'm shooting all the stills with just by flipping a switch. Sure. And it makes it a lot easier because I'm only carrying one set of video, one set of a visual gear in the field. I was always carrying a camera with me, but I didn't want to have to carry a second camera. In addition right. to the still camera I always carried... And the form factor was such that the little small cameras didn't have the video quality I wanted. But the technology has moved now to the point where I'm shooting HD video with this Canon that is of higher quality than I would have been able to shoot several years ago with a professional-grade video camera. And, of course, that's opening that up for so many more people. And, and you're exactly. right. You're right. Sorry to interrupt, but you're right. I, I mean, I am aware that photography has been an interest of yours um, and if my understanding is right you're now making some of your prints available for people to purchase exactly we decided to do that uh, my family and I uh, basically whiskey cast is now a family endeavor um, my wife and daughters are heavily involved in the business and the marketing side of things and trying to make sure that we can make this work for the long term now uh, and that frees me up to create more content and to be able to hit the road a little bit more and shoot more video and create more pictures and go out and cover more events without having to be here and worrying about dealing with the business side of things. And one of the things that I've been asked many times over the years is, would it be possible for us to buy a print of one of your photos? Uh, the last request came just some, uh, there was a gentleman who wanted to see if he could get a print of one of my photos for his father for Father's Day. And I finally decided that I had finally found a place that could print photos for me, professional-grade prints that were archival that I could be happy with. Uh, my overwhelming rule is that I want the highest quality possible from my work, whether it's uh, audio, video, or photography. And I wasn't going to put my name on something that I wasn't proud of. Hmm. And I finally found a place where we could do photos and get them printed properly with the quality that I want, and we decided to start making some available. And I'll, I'll add a few more to the catalog occasionally, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, that's, it's only out there basically as a service. Uh, if people want to buy those photos, that's great. If they don't, that's fine too. It's, uh, sure it's just another way to uh, 
basically to, to make some of this content available to people who've asked for it. Mm. Mark, talking about the technology for a moment, I mean, technology is made making things like podcasts and doing blogs an easy thing to do. Um, I say that, I've struggled with it like anything myself, but I think most <laughs> people find it easy to do. Right. You make it doing that very well look easy. I know from my experience it isn't. But with more and more people doing things like blogs within the world of whiskey, the approaches to that are becoming very varied. What's your thoughts on that? I mean, it's going to the, the argument of the difference between the amateur writer and the professional writer, for example. What are your, what are your thoughts on the fact that there is so many views and blogs and things like that out there at the moment? Bring it on. The more voices, the merrier. This is democratizing the whiskey world in a way that we have, and basically in all of news, we're now seeing more user-generated content out there than ever before, and it gives more people a voice. It really has brought the world closer together. I have uh, friends that I've met through WhiskeyCast now all over the world that I would never have been able to meet with if I hadn't yeah. done this show. Yeah. And I think everyone has a voice. And if you're out there creating content that is good, people will flock to it. People will find you. And if you have something to say, go ahead and say it. Uh, you may not find an audience for it. That may mean that you're not saying what uh, people want to hear, or it may mean that uh, you're saying exactly what they don't want to hear, and they're not following you for whatever reason. Sure. But if you don't give a chance to a platform to express those views, yeah, then, well, okay. then, we, then we lose out. Sure, absolutely. And I mean, one, for me, one of the, the important things recently that, that could come out of this is the more views are being expressed, the more so, the more certain things are be, can be challenged. Now, I know that one of the things that, that you've raised recently is to do with the legislation in the US about things such as the definition of whiskey. Um, it's something that I've become concerned about as well because for example I know that St George's in England has had trouble getting through into the American market right. because of the legislation there about what can be classified as being a single malt. Now, well I've, there is no, that's just it, there is no classification for single malt, the only classification is for malt whiskey hmm. and unfortunately it's lumped in with bourbon, rye, wheat whiskeys and malted rye in that U.S. law, for the lack of a better term, requires the use of new charred oak barrels. Sure. And the rest of the world, no one else in the world uses new charred oak barrels for malt whiskey, but the law has an exemption in it for the traditional whiskey-producing countries of, the U of Scotland, rather, not even the U.K., but Scotland specifically, Canada, and Ireland. Right. Because when the law was written, those were the only countries producing whiskey for the most part, other than the U.S. And are you personally, are you happy with that to stay the same? Or how would you like to see that changed? Well, as I said on my blog this week and on the uh, comments from the Barstool section at the WhiskeyCast website, what I would like to see done is for the U.S. to sort of adopt the Scotch Whiskey Code regulations, which at least for malt whiskey, leave everything else the same, but set up a separate category for malt whiskey that takes the, uh, the law that was worked out over a couple of years between uh, the U.K. government, the Scotch Whiskey Association, 
and basically creates those uh, same five categories of single malt, single grain, blended malt, grain wi- blended grain whiskey, and then blended scotch whiskey, only taking out the term scotch and allowing those categories to be used in the U.S. legally by whiskeys from any country. So that that's where I'd like to. I mean, that I think that makes the most most sense because the industry can get has embraced the main, the mainstream Scotch industry has embraced what is being done with the SWA organization or the SWA's rules that have been put in or suggestions that were eventually written into law. And I think that would be a very good starting point for the U.S. It recognizes traditional industry practice of using refill barrels, but would not discriminate against whiskeys based on country of origin, but still protects the geographical protections that Scotch, Irish, and Canadian whiskeys have had traditionally, Hmm. but would allow whiskeys from other countries to receive that same, or to at least receive the same access. I I firmly believe that the U.S. is going to have to do this at some point, either can do it willingly or it can do it under uh, pressure from the World Trade Organization, because you're going to have... uh, some of the countries that uh, are subject to this rule that are going to claim uh, discrimination right. and an unfair trade practice, and it's going to wind up at the WTO. Hmm. Hmm. Mark, that sounds absolutely very, very sensible. I, well, I do want to comment, though, that I, I've read your coverage on it, and it did inspire what I had to say. Um, I know you had covered it. I'd also read some stories that uh, the BBC had covered as well. And uh, I'm glad to see they were following you, apparently, in your coverage. So that's where I, I, I knew that this had been an issue because I've seen it with virtually every, for lack of a better term, world whiskey that tries to come into the U.S. runs into some difficulties because of this. Yeah. yeah. So it, it wasn't the first time I'd seen the problem, but it's interesting when... As you pointed out, there's about a 200-mile difference between sure. Saint, where St. George's, the English Whiskey Company, is located in Norfolk and Scotland, and those whiskeys receive different treatment. Even though the stills were made in Scotland that the English Whiskey Company is using, that the Nelstrup family uses, um, Ian Henderson, a Scotsman, helped them design the distillery and set everything up. Yet it's classified as unclassifiable by the U.S. because it doesn't meet those standards. Mark, where, where do you stand on, on buckwheat whiskey? Buckwheat whiskey? Yeah, such as the French Edu, which they classify as being a single malt whiskey. Yeah. Even though it's made from buckwheat. I've never tried it, so I, if it's, it's, if it's malted un- buckwheat... It's a very unusual flavour. Yeah, my concern with it is that my understanding from the botany side of it, if that's the right word, is that buckwheat isn't actually a true grain. And that their argument is, well, you can use it as a cereal, therefore it becomes a cereal, even though it's not a true grain. My concern is if it's not a true grain, you can't really make whiskey from it. I'm going to defer to you on that one because... If it meets, if the European Union, which has basically adopted the malted grain category or the grain requirements hmm. for whiskey, is allowing the sale of this as malt whiskey, then that's I can't ar- I can't argue with it right, because okay. I it, that's the uh, 
The standard that's the standard in France. France allows it, and the European Union allows it. And the European Union has been the first one to say, "Well, we can't have Indian whiskey being sold here because it's made with molasses." So, if the EU is willing to consider that buckwheat is a grain for or a cereal grain for that intent, then yeah, I can't really argue the point. It's an interesting one. It's a very interesting one. Let's not get bogged down with that, Mark, because okay. there is a final question I must ask you. I mean, there's loads of questions I'd love to ask you, but I have to be careful with time. <laughs> and this is a question that I really do have to ask you, because oh. I've not heard you ask this question for a oh, no. while now. You know what I'm going to say. I know what the question is. <laughs> Let me ask you the question, though. Sometime in the far ahead future, when it comes to that final dram, which one are you going to choose? When it comes to that final dram, I used to answer this, and I've always answered it by saying, I don't know yet because I'm still exploring whiskeys, and I'm still tasting, and I, I really can't say what my absolute last dram would be. I hope I get the chance to pick that last dram, and it's not picked for me. But uh, I have a suspicion that if I find out that that's a sudden event that's about to happen, I'm probably just going to grab whatever the closest bottle is. Sure. And go for that one. Yeah. But I haven't picked out the uh, the absolute last dram I would ever have because I'm still exploring. I've got uh, so many samples of so many great whiskeys and a, a, a modest collection of bottles. But uh, there's got to be some out there that I haven't found yet. Oh, absolutely. And that's where I would uh, I still got to look. So I'm hoping I don't have to answer that question for a long time to come. I mean, I was once asked, what was my favorite with me? I get, I've been asked lots of times, what's your favorite whiskey? Um, and my answer to that one has always been, well, that depends on my mood or what have you. But the true answer to that question is always the next one. Yeah, it depends yeah. on what you're buying. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Mark, it's been an absolute honor to talk to you. Um, thank you, Jim, and congratulations on your anniversary. Well, thank you very much. And, I mean, just to reiterate, if it wasn't for yourself, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. Um, because you are the person who inspired me to do it um, thank you so much so thank you very much mark and i look forward to um the, all your future podcasts that i'm sure are going to come through and i look forward to yours too jim this week has also been the week where i've had the latest edition of whiskey magazine come through my letterbox Issue number 97, the August-September 2011 issue. And it looks like yet another cracking good edition. What have we got in here? Well, this time the focus or the main focus is all to do with America, the USA spotlight. And there's stuff in here about Jack Daniels, Wild Turkey, Diageo in America, A Drinker's Guide to New York. But there's also some other stuff. There's Rob Allerton's trip with on a BMW going around Ireland and exploring its whiskies. Um, there's a section about whiskey heroes, about retailing, about cocktails, um, lost distilleries of London. There's a specific focus on Glenmorangie and so much more. Now one of the things that is in here that I was really pleased to see is that they have appointed a new US contributing editor who has written the th uh, an article for the magazine on page 13. It's called Round the World and it's written by Mark Gillespie. So congratulations for that as well, Mark. 
on Saturday, the 23rd of July 2011, Ian Logan, brand ambassador for Glenlivet, and five lucky, sorry, very, very lucky Glenlivet Guardian ambassadors were engaged in some hard work. Well, they call it hard work. I was going to say hard work, my... So who were these people? Well, these are Peter Fundheller from Germany, Tom Alanko from Spain, Tino Braz from the Netherlands, Linda Jackson from the UK, and Martin Verbeist from the Netherlands. And of course, they're, as I said earlier, joined by Ian Logan. Now, these five Guardian ambassadors won the chance to help Ian in doing this piece of what they call hard work, which was choosing which cask was going to be the next single cask edition from the Glenlivet. Now, the one they chose was cask number two, but I guess they had to taste all of them to make sure they got the right one. That does sound like hard work, doesn't it? The bottling, when this cask is bottled, will be called Guardian and will only be available to Guardians of the Glenlivet. Now that's another good reason to become one, which you can do so by visiting the Glenlivet website, and links for that are going to be on my website. Interestingly, previous cask editions have been called the following. The first one was Atlantic, then it was Blair Findy, Camdam, Drummond, Eclipse, and Famouser. Now, I most likely got some of those pronunciations wrong, and regular listeners will be quite familiar with me doing that. But even despite my dodgy pronunciation, you might follow a trend there. And the trend is that they are alphabetical, beginning with A, then B, C, D, E, F, and of course this next one that's coming is going to be G, Guardian. Now, I have put out a comment then that the one after that is going to be an H. Now, what would be a good name for a, a limited cask edition Glenlivet whiskey beginning with H? My idea is have one on Ian. A quick bit of news now, press release from the Scotch Whiskey Association announcing that Scotch Whiskey has become the first foreign product to be registered and protected as a geographical indication of origin, a GI, in Turkey. This means consumers in Turkey will now receive better protection from fake Scotch Whiskey as a result of the decision by the authorities, formally to recognise Scotch as a product that can only be made in Scotland. GI registration supports the integrity of Scotch whisky as a product made in Scotland according to the Scotch Whisky Regulations 2009. Registration will make the protection of Scotch whisky through the courts considerably easier. The problem of the availability of fake alcohol in Turkey was highlighted in June when Russian tourists in the Turkish Aegean resort of Bodrum were poisoned, resulting in some fatalities after consuming illicitly produced alcohol. Alan Park, legal advisor of the Scotch Whisky Association, said it's a breakthrough for the industry that Scotch whisky has become the first foreign product GI to be registered in Turkey 
where there are around 150 domestic GIs. There is a huge demand for Scotch whisky from discerning Turkish consumers and from tourists visiting the country. It is important that they have the confidence in the quality and integrity of what they are buying. Well, I was over in Turkey recently, and whilst I was there, I had some of the domestic Turkish whisky. And to be honest, seeing this announcement from the Scotch Whisky Association is good news, and it's something I'm sure I'm going to appreciate the next time I'm over in Turkey. Brilliant. Well, thank you again for listening to this episode of the More to Muse podcast. If you haven't heard them already, there is a back catalogue of other episodes available on iTunes. And if anybody wants to contact me, they can do so. My email address is jim at com. There's the website www.themaltedmuse.com and there's also Twitter, Twitter at The Malted Muse. And with a nod towards Mark Gillespie, for those of you who listen to Whiskeycast, let me just say, from the beautiful and happily not dry village of Holy Moorside in the county of Derbyshire, England, until next week, thank you and goodbye.